The Word of God, the Bible, is the story of God. And every week when we open it here, we're not simply opening a book to be read. We're opening a life to be lived. It speaks of God's heart toward His creation, and it tells of creation's response back to Him. Its words are alive because its author is alive. Its message is active and sharp because its words are timeless and piercing. We're turning pages that not only help us discover ancient people, but pages where we find ourselves discovered at every turn. There is nothing routine or ordinary about this moment because the Word of God is anything but ordinary or routine. We pray that the two-dimensional pages become fully dimensional as we uncover its truth together. And we pray this in the name of the God who is redeeming it all for His glory and who's given us this book that is so much more than a book. If you want to take your Bible with me this morning and find your place at 2 Timothy chapter 3, in just a few moments, I'm going to be speaking from that passage of Scripture, a passage of Scripture that's found there. I have a little bit of sad news to deliver to you first. One of our very own ladies who has been here my entire ministry here, almost 40 years, went to heaven. Uh, Jean Clary uh, passed away. Uh, she was a greeter back in the back lobby. You probably have seen her many times. She was in some of our plays, one of them that I remember. She played the part of Merry Christmas. That was the name, Merry Christmas. And uh, she was an active part of everything we were doing around here. She was 94 years of age. So that means what? She was almost uh, 54 when I came. And uh, she has walked this journey with us as a church through all of those years. She was here before that, by the way, but she walked with us through that journey for the last almost uh, going on 40 years. Her funeral is this coming Tuesday at Chapman's Mortuary. Uh, it's at noon, and then visitation is from 11 until noon. And so I encourage you, if you can, to stop by and pay your respects and uh, maybe stay for the service and be a blessing uh, to her family. Second uh, Timothy chapter 3 Verse 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every work. And then, if you'll turn a little further back in your Bible to 2 Peter, all the way back to 2 Peter chapter 1, and just notice what it says. Verses 20 and 21. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. As they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So you'll want to come back now to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to spend most of our time in this particular section of Scripture. Let's pray together. Father, we come to a series of messages that I pray will be a light on a hill. 
over the next few weeks as we talk about some very important matters where we cannot dim the light. We cannot change the light. We must shine the light clearly from that hillside so that all can see it. In a day of great compromise, in a day when churches are lowering their flag and they're not preaching the word of God as they once preached it, I pray, Lord God, that we will always be a church that holds high the truth of your word. In your name I pray, amen. We've entitled this series, Light on a Hill, and the reason is a little bit to do with what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. He talked about a city that was set on a hill, and everybody could see it. It was a landmark, no matter where you were traveling, because it was up on the hill where everybody else could look up and see the city. You could obviously you know, navigate as a result of knowing where the city was. Another illustration that Jesus gave in the Sermon on the Mount had to do with the candle. And he said, you light a candle in the darkness to dispel the darkness, but you don't take the candle and put a bushel over it and hide the light. You let the light shine so that everybody can see their way out of the darkness. Over these next few weeks, we're going to be talking about this light on a hill. Some things about our church that are a part of our DNA. They are a part of who we are. And in a day of compromise, you might not hear these things everywhere else you go, but I want you to know that you're going to hear these things here again and again and again. We begin this series by talking about one of the most important things that we have to discuss, and that has to do with the inspiration of the Scripture, the inspiration of the Bible. If you come to join our church or if you come as a guest, at some point you're going to be wanting to know what we believe and we have a doctrinal statement that we hand out and we make available to anybody and to everybody. You can even download it from the internet at our website, the entire doctrinal statement. And in that, we have numerous things that we have delineated about what we believe as a congregation. But as you look at that doctrinal statement, the very first thing at the top of the list has to do with the word of the living God. It has to do with the inspiration of Scripture. We're going to put it on the screen for you to be able to see, but this is what it says. We believe the Holy Scriptures to be the verbally inspired Word of God, the final authority for faith and life, inerrant in the original writings, infallible, and God-breathed. Now, I want you to notice some words. We believe it to be verbally inspired. We don't believe that God just gave them some ideas and then they were able to pin exactly what they wanted. They were able to formulate the words themselves. We believe that the inspiration of the Bible, whatever that means, and we're going to talk about that today, but we believe that whatever that means, it means it goes all the way to the very words that were written on the page, that God inspired every word. It's the final authority. This is not about what the church believes or, you know, some what tradition tells us or what some ceremony that we've concocted. This, this is about the final authority of our lives. If you want to know how a Christian is supposed to be living his life, it's according to what this book teaches. No matter what the world says, no matter what other churches may tell you, if they're not telling you what's in this book, then they're not telling you what is the final authority. If we want to know whether something is right or wrong, where do we go? We go to the word of the living God. It's inerrant. 
in the original in the original manuscripts what they call the autographs it's inerrant it is without error it is a perfect book and then you'll notice it's infallible it's infallible that means anything that it says is true everything that it says is true everything comes to pass that it says if it hasn't come to pass yet, it will come to pass. And so we believe the Holy Scriptures to be the verbally inspired Word of God, the final authority for faith and life, inerrant in the original writings, infallible, and God-breathed. Now, the question that we want to talk about for a little while today is, what does it mean to say that the Bible is inspired? Uh, the Greek word is theopnistos. It's the word theo, meaning God, and pneuma, meaning breath or air. It's God-breathed, the last word of this statement. It's God-breathed. I've brought a couple of, of statements that are made by theologians just so that you can see. This is not my idea alone. This is the idea of those who have studied the Word of God as I have studied the Word of God. For instance, Dr. William Evans talking about this subject says, the statements of the Scripture may be summed up as follows. Holy men of God, qualified by the infusion of the breath of God, wrote in obedience to the divine command and were kept from all error, whether they revealed truths previously unknown or recorded truths already familiar. Or one of my favorite theologians, and he's in heaven now, but he continues to be one of my favorite theologians, is Dr. Charles Ryrie. This is what he has in his book of theology. My own definition of biblical inspiration is that it is God's superintendence of the human authors so that using their own individual personalities, they composed and recorded without error his revelation to man in the words of the original autographs. He goes on, several features of the definition are worth emphasizing. Number one, God superintended but did not dictate the material. Number two, he used human authors and their own individual styles. And number three, nevertheless, the product was, in its original manuscripts, without error. Maybe if I could give to you just a, an illustration. As you know, most illustrations have uh, some imperfection to them. It's difficult to, it's difficult to illustrate supernatural truths. And we talk about inspiration. We're talking about something that's miraculous. We're talking about something that's supernatural. But, but think for a moment about a musician who has an instrument. And he blows through that instrument to create a very specific sound. It's in a similar fashion that God's Spirit blew through the instrumentation of human personalities to produce his perfect word. His perfect word. Now think about this. When you're, you're thinking about your Bible, hopefully you've brought it with you today. But when you're thinking about the Bible, you understand that the Bible was written over 1,500 years by 40 different authors from every walk of life. It was written by kings and servants and fishermen and poets and doctors and herdsmen and even a tax collector. Oh, that one hurts, doesn't it? It was written on three different continents, Europe, Asia, and Africa, in 16 different countries, and in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And yet the Bible is perfect in its scope, 
in its purpose and in its unity of message. In other words, you and I, because of the inspiration of the Scripture, can take this book in our hands and we can hold it up and we can say, we have the Word of God, the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of the living God that's been given to mankind. This Bible that we hold in our hands is more than just another book. This is a supernatural book. This is a miraculous book. This is a book that tells us a story about how life began and what happened that made the world what it is and why we needed a Savior and who is the Savior and what he did for us and what his promise is that he's ultimately going to do even with the world in which we live today. You understand that the Bible for the Christian is a love letter. It's a road map. It's a spring of life. It's a breath of fresh air. For the Christian, it's his food. It's his rest. It's his guide. It's his river. It's his foundation. It's his salvation. In other words, what we have in the Bible is a treasure that God has given to us. This is the word of God to mankind. When I think about the treasure that we have in the scripture, I think about a little story that I heard about a young man named Bingham Bryant. Bingham Bryant was a teenager in high school, and he discovered an ancient treasure that was hanging on the wall of his own school. It was an unusual painting in the library that caught his attention, and he liked it so much that he told his dad about it. Well, Bingham's father was an antique dealer, and he researched that painting, and he learned that it had hung on the walls of his son's school for 70 years. Walter Crane had painted that masterpiece in 1878, and he called it the Horses of Neptune. And after his death, his heir had loaned it, that painting, to the old Lyme school. And that painting, which was doing nothing more than collecting dust for the most part, had hung on that wall for all of those years, and it was ultimately sold at auction for a million dollars. Think about that for a moment. In the high school library where some kid could have knocked it off the wall, could have walked up to it and drawn on it or scribbled on it, who could have done something else that would have caused damage to it, and there it hung. They didn't even know the treasure that they had right there in their own school. And yet, so often it's true that you and I don't know the treasure that we have in the book that we hold in our hands. How many of you have watched the television program that's on PBS called uh, Antique Roadshow? Any of you seen it? Just about everybody likes to see that show. You know, they go from place to place, and people bring all of these old antiques and, you know, things that they think might be of value, and then they have somebody to look at those things. And every once in a while, somebody will discover that what they had in their basement or maybe up in their attic or they've kept a, away in some storage area for a while is something of great value. Well, you might not have a valuable antique in your living room or masterpieces that are hanging on your wall, but every person with a Bible has a priceless treasure in his or her possession, and it ought to be treated as such. In a day when we're downgrading the Scripture, 
Preachers come to the pulpit and hardly even mention the Bible, hardly even talk about the Scripture or use it as a springboard to say something else when we get positive thinking sermons, when we get uh, messages about self-image and self-respect and self-love. And the Bible is never referenced or rarely ever referenced in a day like that. I want you to know that your church is going to be a light on a hill. We're going to hold high the word of the living God God breathed and given to us, inspired by God, inerrant, infallible. The word of the living God, the Bible is inspired. Did you know that about the book that you hold in your hands? You know, in the day that we live in, people have multiple copies of this book, and if they don't have it as a book, they have it on an electronic device. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I love the electronic devices, and I use one for my devotional time sometimes, but I think the best thing for every Christian is to have a printed Bible. Carry it with you to church. Open it before your children. Don't leave them wondering what you're reading on your iPad. Let them see that you respect and honor and hold dear in your family the word of the living God, that you treasure it with all of your heart. The Bible is Inspired, But I want you to see, secondly, that the Bible is profitable. We come back to verse 16 of 2 Timothy chapter 3. All Scripture is given. You see the word given? It's given. Where does it come from? It comes from God, the one who breathes through the authors so that they write down exactly what he wants to be recorded. All Scripture, not just some Scripture, but all Scripture, from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, all Scripture is given by inspiration. God breathed and is profitable. It's profitable. And when we talk about profit here, we're not talking about it in the business sense. You know, you businessmen and women, you understand about profit and loss. You, you want to know at the end of the year, how much money did I make? How much over what I spent did I make? That's, those are important facts and those are important details, but that's not what he's talking about when he uses the word profitable here. What Paul means by profitable is that the Scripture has value, that the Holy Scripture is unparalleled and it's indeed essential to our lives. It's relevant it's necessary. It's useful. It may be several thousand years old in some cases, as much as 2,000 plus years old, but the fact is it's necessary, it's relevant, it's useful, and it's the right tool. It's the indispensable tool of the child of God's life. Notice what he goes back and he says here, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. It's valuable, it's relevant, it's useful, it's essential to your life. And what for? For doctrine. That's basic instruction about the things of God for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. I simply can't say it better than Warren Wiersbe said it. The word, the word uh, doctrine means what is right. The word reproof means what is not right. Uh, when he talks about for correction, it means how to get right. And when he says instruction in righteousness, it's how to stay right. In other words, the Word of God is absolutely essential. It is the right tool. If you are ignoring it, you're working with the wrong tools in your life. 
And the end result is always disastrous. Think about it for a moment. It won't be very long, and your grass is going to start growing again. Thank the Lord. We'll be able to see it. Your grass is going to start growing again. Let me ask you a question. When you go out to cut your grass, are you going to go out and cut your grass with a pair of scissors or with a lawnmower? I mean, you've got to have the right tool. When you go out to cut your yard, you don't go out with a pair of scissors. You go out with the right tool. You go out with a lawnmower to cut that yard. The Word of God is the right tool. It's the essential tool. It's the necessary tool. It's the relevant tool. It's the useful tool in every believer's life. Here's what I know. If you're not reading your Bible on a consistent basis, you are starving yourself spiritually to death. You're depressed and you're discouraged and you're despondent and you're having all kinds of problems in your life that you don't know what the answer is because you're not reading into the Word of God. You're not reading out of the Word of God. You understand that this preacher, when I don't read my Bible, I feel like I'm being starved to death. I I go into a spiritual decline when I'm not reading the Scripture. It It is my food. It is my roadmap. It is essential to my life. And it's interesting that a lot of politicians have known that through the years. President Andrew Jackson said the Bible is the rock on which our republic rests. President George Washington said it's impossible to rightly govern without God and the Bible. President Calvin Coolidge said in this book will be found the solution to all the problems of the world. My favorite president in my lifetime, President Ronald Reagan said no book has so molded the life of a nation as the Bible has shaped America. It has been America's hope, its foundation, its molder of character. The Bible has sustained America throughout its 200-year history and is our only hope of security for the years ahead. Would to God some politicians in Washington had that much sense. President John Quincy Adams said, I speak as a man of the world to men of the world. And I say to you, search the scriptures. The Bible is the book above all others to be read at all ages and in all conditions of human life. Not to be read once or twice through and then laid aside, but to be read in small portions every day. Or President Thomas Jefferson, who didn't believe in the inspiration of scripture who took a Bible and cut out of it the passages that he believed and he accepted, and he pasted it into what became known as the Jefferson Bible. They have a copy of it, the Jefferson Bible. He didn't believe in the inspiration, but listen to what he said about the Bible. It will make better citizens, better husbands, and better fathers. Why? Because the Bible is profitable. Now look around you. Look around the world we're living in. They excise the Bible from almost every aspect of life. And in the process of excising the Bible, are we getting better or are we getting worse? Are we on an upward trend or are we on a downward trend? Obviously, we're not moving in the right direction. And you understand that he wrote these words. Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for what is right, for what is not right, how to get right, and how to stay right. He wrote this this passage of Scripture, Paul did, while he was in prison. He was writing to a young preacher by the name of Timothy. 
And Timothy was surrounded by people who were much older than he was. Uh, he was in a city, the city of Ephesus, that was filled with debauchery and wickedness everywhere. He wrote to a young man that was having a hard struggle about dealing with the things that he had to confront as a pastor. He was placed there to set the church in order. Remember what it says about him? It says that sometimes he had the spirit of fear. He had trepidation. Remember the occasion in 1 Timothy where he says, Hey, Timothy... Take a little wine for your stomach's sake. You know what that means? That's a medicinal uh, remedy. Your, your stomach is churning. Every pastor in the room knows what I'm talking about. Your stomach is churning within you. And take a little bit of wine for your stomach's sake. This was a man who was struggling, a young man who was struggling. And Paul comes in this Second, the second letter to him, 2 Timothy, Paul is facing his own imminent death. He's under arrest for the second time in the city of Rome. It won't be but a matter of hours or days, and he will lose his life. And he writes to this young preacher who's still struggling and still has a hard time moving forward, still has that spirit of fear that sometimes overtakes him, that trepidation that sometimes overcomes him. And he says, look, Timothy, all the scripture, every word of it has been breathed out by God. It's profitable. It's profitable for doctrine. It's profitable for reproof. It's profitable for correction. It's profitable for instruction in righteousness. And then look what he says, chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Timothy, I charge you, therefore, knowing the profitability of the scripture i know you I, I charge you therefore before god and the lord jesus christ who will judge the living and the dead and his appearing in his kingdom i mean this is a, this is a big deal I, i'm telling you before god you understand you're going to have to answer to him he is the final judge and what is he going to tell him to do come up with some new guidance for being able to deal with the people of your church Go do some more market research and find out what it is everybody wants and offer it to them. What did he tell him to do? Verse 2, he said, preach the word. Why? It's inspired of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out, out of season when it's popular and when it's not popular. To convince has to do with conviction. It involves your emotions. Rebuke has to do with your mind. To correct what is wrong in your thinking. And exhort has to do with your will. Exhorting you to do the right thing and to do that with all long-suffering and teaching. And why should Timothy do that? Verse 3, for the time will come, and we certainly are there, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because, uh, the, uh, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. They have itching ears. You know what that means? It means they're going to find somebody that will tickle their ear and tell them what they want to hear. Now, I want to tell you today, there's people going to church all over this country, for that matter, all over this world, and they're looking for a preacher that will tell them what they want to hear. 
when they ought to be looking for a preacher that's going to tell them what the Word of God says. It's interesting to me that in the state of Kentucky, a number of years ago, several years ago now, they were allowed to have the Ten Commandments hanging on the walls of the public school classrooms. Of course, you know the Supreme Court eventually ruled against the state of Kentucky, and they had to take down the Ten Commandments. But in their ruling, these were their words. I quote, Having the commandments on the wall may induce a student to read, meditate upon, and actually obey what is therein written. Oh, that would be terrible, wouldn't it? I mean, don't lie and don't steal and don't commit adultery. Don't covet all those things. That'd be, be terrible. You understand that the Supreme Court of the United States recognized the profitability of the Word of God? They understood that it had the ability to transform the character of the people who read it. We have this incredible treasure that's been given to us by way of inspiration, supernaturally recorded for us. We have today some 6,000 or so copies, portions or full copies of this book where copyists have recorded word for word and letter for letter. This book is miraculous. People have tried to destroy it. The militant atheists look for errors in it. But you realize for hundreds now, hundreds of years, They've been completely unsuccessful in the Word of God. The Bible is still the best, uh, the most printed and most purchased book there is. In her book, Amazing Grace, the writer and poet Kathleen Norris shared what she called the scariest story she'd ever heard about the Bible. Norris and her husband were visiting a man named Arlo. He was a rugged, self-made kind of a man who was facing terminal cancer. And during their visit, Arlo started talking about his grandfather, who was a genuine, a sincere Christian man. The grandfather gave Arlo and his bride a wedding present, an expensive leather Bible with their names printed in gold letter, lettering. Arlo left it in the box and never opened it. But for months afterwards, his grandfather kept asking, did you like the Bible? Did, did you like the Bible? Did you like the Bible I gave you? Gave you? He said, Arlo told, she said, Arlo told Kathleen Norris that the wife had written a nice thank you note, and we thanked him in person, but somehow he couldn't let it lie. He always had to ask about it. Finally, Arlo grew curious enough to open the Bible. Arlo said, the joke was on me. I finally took the Bible out of the closet, and I found that Granddad had placed a $20 bill at the beginning of the book of Genesis and at the beginning of every other book, over $1,300 in all. And he knew I'd never find it. And he knew I would never find it. Do you understand that there is wealth on the pages of this book that if you don't open it and you don't read it, you will never see how it can change your life. You'll never see the direction or the peace or the comfort or the stability. You'll never understand if you downgrade your thinking about the Word of God, that it's just another book like every other book. 
if you don't understand its profitability, that it's the right tool to change your life and to change the lives of others? But thirdly, I'd have you to know that the Bible is not only inspired and it's not only profitable, that the Bible is transformative. It is the Bible that changes people's lives. Notice what he says. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete. That means completely qualified. Thoroughly equipped means to be made adequate or sufficient for something. Thoroughly equipped for every good work. Please notice the word equipped. Please notice the word equipped. The equipping here is a sharp contrast to the modern idea of being equipped by means of academic degrees. I got your attention now, don't I? You can have multiple degrees hanging on a wall and be spiritually ignorant. As a matter of fact, take your Bible just for a moment. Keep your place there. Go back with me to Psalm 119 where Vicki was quoting earlier in the service. Psalm 119, verse 97. Psalm 119, verse 97. Listen to what it says. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, because I keep your precepts. Did you hear that? More than the enemies, more than the teachers, and more than the ancients. The Word of God is a book that equips us in ways that an Education in a school system or a college can never equip us. That's why you come to church, by the way. That's why you get involved in life groups. That's why you get involved in Bible studies. That's, that's why you want to know this book when you're reading for yourself. You want to know more about what it has to say. You want to dig deeper and deeper. I promise you, on the campus of our local college, they're not going to teach you the word of the living God that it's infallible, inerrant, inspired of the Almighty God. As a matter of fact, there's some seminaries that won't even teach you that. They're more like cemeteries than they are seminaries. I want you to understand the Bible is transformative. It equips it, com it completely qualifies. It, it's, it gives to you whatever is necessary, what makes you adequate, what makes you, you sufficient for whatever it is God has for you to do. It's the Word of God that does that. It's not what you make on your ACT or SAT or A, B, C, D, and E. I don't know what they call them these days, whatever the tests are. You can ace it and be spiritually ignorant. In your life suffering as a result. By the way, you can be smart, smart and be spiritually smart too. You can be educationally smart and spiritually smart. That's what you want to do. 
But you can be educationally smart, smart, and you can be spiritually dumb, and you're in a desperate circumstance. Our kids go off to college believing things that we believe, and they come back disbelieving because we haven't prepared them. We haven't shown them that this book is true, the infallible, inerrant word of the living God. The Bible is transformative. You've heard me talk about her before. Her name is Dr. Rosaria Butterfield. I've read both of her books. You can Google her name and you can watch videos on YouTube about her where she's speaking. She was a former tenured professor at the University of Syracuse. She was a committed and comfortable lesbian until she had what she described as a train wreck conversion to Christ. At one point in her life, she writes, as an unbelieving professor of English, an advocate of postmodernism, and an opponent of all totalizing meta-narratives like Christianity, I would have added back in the day, I found peace and purpose in my life as a lesbian and the queer community I helped to create. Today, she's married to Pastor Kent Butterfield, and she's the mother to four adopted children and numerous foster children. After her conversion, she describes an encounter with a female counselor who wanted Dr. Butterfield to adjust her message about homosexual practice. The woman asked Dr. Butterfield to state publicly that homosexual practice is not inherently wrong. I'm going to read you Dr. Butterfield's words, her response to this colleague. Butterfield writes, When I entered her office, she directed me to a comfortable chair and made one simple request. Rosaria, I want you to change your message. I found this a bold and disarming request, and so I told her that I come in the gospel of peace. She said, change your message. Finally, I asked her what I ought to change in my message. She said, tell people that it's only in your opinion that homosexual practice is a sin. I responded by letting her know that I'm not smart enough to have this opinion but that this is the position the inspired and inerrant word of God upholds. It comes to me from the historic Christian church through the pages of Scripture and so on down to me. I told her that changing my message would involve denying the plain meaning of Scripture, the testimony of the church, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and the gospel. But to the postmodern mind, her request seems reasonable enough. Just own this position of mine as a personal point of view. Now listen, she says, but claiming something that is a universal truth to be a mere matter of personal preference is a lie by omission. This is the Bible's message, and apart from Christ, I am more condemned by it than the woman who made this request. Apart from Christ, I am more condemned by it than the woman who made the request. Do you understand what she's saying? The Bible is transformative. The Bible is transformative. It doesn't matter what your sin pattern may be. It doesn't matter how deep in that sin pattern you may have gone. If you want to be free, it's more than a drug. It's more than some therapy. If you want to be free, it comes from Jesus Christ through his word. He's the one who changes people. 
He is the one who changes people. Go watch it. Rosaria Butterfield. Fascinating lady. What are you saying to me, preacher? Here's what I'm saying to you. I'm staking our position. You should do the same. This is who I am. This is what I believe. I will not vary from it. I'm not going to just go along with the modern society in which I live and the modern theology of this world. I'm going to stand with God on the authority of his word. Whatever God says is true, whether I can understand it all or not. I want to finish out with a couple of stories. They come from the life of Billy Graham. If you've read his autobiography, Just As I Am, if you haven't, you ought to read it. Uh, in his autobiography, he writes about this experience that I'm about to tell you about. But rather than take that long section of his book, I'm taking a section from Lee Strobel's book called The Case for Faith, where he summarizes it. Lee Strobel writes, after abandoning journalism for the ministry, Charles Templeton met Billy Graham in 1945 at a Youth for Christ rally. They were roommates and constant companions during an adventurous tour of Europe, alternating in the pulpit as they preached at rallies. His friendship with Graham grew. He's one of the few men I have ever loved in my life, Graham once told a biographer. But soon doubts began gnawing at Templeton. Templeton argued, Billy, you're 50 years out of date. People no longer accept the Bible as being inspired the way you do. Your faith is too simple. Graham would recall, I was certainly disturbed. Graham searched the scriptures for answers. He prayed, he pondered. Finally, in a heavy-hearted walk in the moonlit San Bernardino Mountains, everything came to a climax. Glipping, gripping a Bible, Graham dropped to his knees and confessed he couldn't answer some of the philosophical and psychological questions that, Temple and, that Templeton and others were raising. I was trying to be on the level with God, but something remained unspoken, he wrote. At last, the Holy Spirit freed me to say it. Father, I'm going to accept this as thy word by faith. I'm going to allow faith to go beyond my intellectual questions and doubts. And I will believe this to be your inspired words. You understand what I'm talking about? A light on a hill. This was his light on the hill moment. This is him putting a stake in the ground. This is what I believe. He goes on, rising from his knees, tears in his eyes. Graham said he sensed the power of God as he hadn't felt it for months. Not all my questions were answered, but a major bridge had been crossed, he said. In my heart and mind, I knew a spiritual battle in my soul had been fought and won. Young people sitting in this room, young adults, singles, those of you in a college classroom, you, you better drive a stake in the ground. And you better say, no matter what the professor tells me, and no matter what the professor does, I take God at his word For Graham, it was a pivotal moment. For Templeton, though, it was a bitterly disappointing turn of events. He committed intellectual suicide by closing his mind, Templeton declared. 
the emotion he felt most toward his friend, Templeton toward Graham, the, the, the emotion he most felt toward his friend was pity. You, you realize this morning, you got up and came to church and some of your neighbors said, those poor, deluded people giving up a Sunday to study the Bible, hear somebody stand in a pulpit and teach him what it says. We could be doing so many other things except that we know that the Bible's inspired. We know that the Bible is profitable, and we know that the Bible is transformative. Now, you know what goes on from the story that I've just told you. Billy Graham goes on to be what is arguably the best-known evangelist for the last several hundred years in Templeton. He went back to Canada. He left the ministry. He became a commentator and a novelist. But I'm about to read you something from Lee Strobel when he interviewed Charles Templeton late in his life. Just listen to his words, Charles Templeton. Lee Strobel writes, and so how do you assess this Jesus? He's asking Templeton. How do you assess this Jesus? It seemed like the next logical question, but I wasn't ready for the response it would evoke. Templeton's body language softened. It was as if he suddenly felt relaxed and comfortable in talking about an old and dear friend. His voice, which at times had displayed such a sharp and insistent edge, now took on a melancholy and reflective tone. His guard seemingly down, he spoke in an unhurried pace, almost nostalgically, carefully choosing his words as he talked about Jesus. He was, Templeton began, the greatest human being who has ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was the intrinsically wisest person that I've ever encountered in my life or in my readings. His commitment was total and led to his own death, much to the detriment of the world. What could one say about him except that this was a form of greatness? I was taken aback, says Strobel. You sound like you really care about him, I said. Well, yes, he's the most important thing in my life, came his reply. I, 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 he stuttered searching for the right word. I know it may sound strange, but I have to say, I adore him. I wasn't sure how to respond. You say that with some emotion, I said. Well, yes, everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. Yes, yes, and tough, just look at Jesus. He castigated people. He was angry. People don't think of him that way because they don't read the Bible. He had a righteous anger. He cared for the oppressed and exploited. There's no question that he had the highest moral standard, the least duplicity, the greatest compassion of any human being in history. There have, to, there have been many other wonderful people, but Jesus, Templeton says, is Jesus. And so the world would do well to emulate him? Oh, my goodness, yes. I have tried and tried as far as I can go to act as I have believed he would act. Abruptly, Templeton cut, his short, his, cut short his thoughts. There was a brief pause, almost as if he was uncertain whether he should continue. 
Uh, but no, he said slowly, he's the most. He stopped and started again. In my view, he declared, he's the most important human being who has ever existed. That's when Templeton uttered the words, I never expected to hear from him. And if I may put it this way, he said it as his voice began to crack. I miss him. With that, tears flooded his eyes. He turned his head and looked downward, raising his left hand to shield his face from me. His shoulders bobbed as he wept. Our church is going to be a light on a hill. We're not going to compromise the word of the living God. It is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of the living God. It is the final authority for faith and light and life. It is God breathed. It is a miraculous book. It is a supernatural book. This Bible that we hold in our hands is profitable for our lives. It, it's profitable to us. This Bible that we hold in our hands is transformative. It's this book, the implanted word of the living God in the hearts of mankind that changes them. And our church will be a church where this, as long as I'm pastor, will be a church that holds high this book and says this is the word of God. You might not agree with it. You might not like it. You might not want to do it, but that doesn't change it. It is the word of the living God, and it's true, and you need it in your life.